And the message of the Bible is that we live in a fantastic universe that is a creation of a fantastic God. And I believe as you look around uh, the intricacy, the diversity of life, the balance of the physical forces of nature which make life possible, all of that to me speaks of a creator. That we are not here by chance. That the universe isn't just chaos. That behind it all there is an intelligent designer of the world we live in and of which we are a part. And uh, the Bible talks about that, of course, in in Genesis chapter 1. And at the end of that first week of creation, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And then as part of that, of course, Adam and Eve are made. And in the beginning, we're told Adam and Eve knew no shame. They didn't know what wrong was. They were completely innocent. But we also know that, although we live in this wonderful creation, we know that it's deeply flawed. We know that mankind is deeply flawed. We know that there is sickness, there is suffering, there is war and injustice and greed and enmity and division and immorality and all of those things. And finally, there's the grave, there's death. That's the reality of the world that we live in. So we live in a wonderful world, but I think deep down inside us we know that it's a damaged world that it's somehow broken, that things are not as they should be. And Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning of the Bible there, gives us a description of how sin came into the world. Adam and Eve, you know, you know the story very well. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to disobey God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing that, they brought God's curse not just on themselves, but the all of mankind, <coughs> and not just on all of mankind, excuse me, <coughs> but all of creation. <coughs> excuse me, that somehow through the sin of Adam and Eve, the whole of creation, Paul says, is, is subject to a, a bondage of decay. So that the world we look we see around us is a glorious creation but it isn't as God intended it's a a creation which has been marred damaged spoiled broken by by man's sinfulness by man's wrong that's the message of the Bible and the whole message of the Bible is about how God deals with with that problem of sin. And here are three verses. These are three verses um, that I learnt when I first became a Christian 40 odd years ago. Um, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And very famous Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the, 
that's the consequence of our wrong. The consequence of the, the sinfulness of mankind is death. And, and that means not just death, physical death, it means separation from God. <coughs> and right now, we live in a world which is characterized by what the Bible calls sin, by wrong, by mankind choosing to go our own way and not God's way. And we see the effects of that every day all around us. We, we only have to look at the news headlines uh, and the, the consequences of sin are writ, writ very large. And the Bible makes it clear that this sin, this wrong, this rebellion of mankind, that's the cause of the brokenness which we see in our world. And it's, it's in that sense that we're using this word broken in this series, that, that people are damaged, people are not as God intended. That phrase that we've got there, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of what God wants us to be. And the message of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation is about how God has acted to mend the brokenness in our lives through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we, when we put our faith in, that, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, when we say not, when we say not just I believe you, rose, you died and rose again, but I believe you died and rose again for me, then everything changes for us. That's the message of the gospel. We buy into God's rescue plan, his plan to heal, restore, renew people, his plan to make all things new, what the Bible calls salvation, God's plan of salvation. And we go, when, we, when we make that step of faith, when we make that choice to believe, to accept, to receive, we go from being in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We go from being under God's condemnation and judgment to being put right with him. We go from having no hope to having a hope of amazing hope of eternity spent in God's presence. That's what we've been singing about in those songs. We go from being God's enemies to being God's friends. We go from being under the control of what the Bible calls the prince of this world, in other, well, in other words, Satan, to having God's Holy Spirit inside us to help us live lives that please God. So everything changes when we make that step of faith into the kingdom of God. I put there Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the other half of that verse says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us, we have that lovely gift of eternal life given to us. Peter expresses it like, like this, talking to, to people who've made that step of faith. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Paul kind of sums it up like this, 2 Corinthians 5.17. There we are. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So, to me, that raises a conundrum, and it raises a question, which is this. If everything changes for us when we become Christians, when we come to trust in Christ's death, death and resurrection for us, how come we're still so much the same? How come I don't feel like a new creation? How come I still do wrong, even by my own standards, let alone God's standards? How come I can still recognize lying and deceit and lust and envy and bitterness in me. How does that square with me being a new creation? And, and it isn't just me that has that problem. Um, the Apostle Paul had the same problem. This is how he expressed it. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. When we say yes to Christ, when we put our faith and trust in him, then he puts his Holy Spirit into us and he begins a work in us. But it's a beginning. It's a process. When we've made that step of faith, we're put right with God, what the Bible calls justified. And we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And God starts that work in us to change us. But it's a process. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. Being made holy. Being made like Jesus. And it's a process that all of us who have made that step of faith to believe in Jesus, all of us are going through that process. You can't avoid it. There are no exceptions. And it's in that process of being made like Jesus, of being changed in our thinking, in the way we act, in the way we are, it's in that process that broken lives are made new. Being, being a Christian isn't just about intellectually believing a set of truths about who Jesus is and what he came to do. It, it is that, but it's much more than that. It's about saying yes to Jesus and it's about inviting him into our lives. It's about saying to Jesus, Lord, have your way in me. It's about having a relationship with the living God through the Holy Spirit, which he puts within us. And as we, as we do that, as we begin that process, that relationship, God starts to work in us and change us. 
he starts that process of mending us, of fixing the brokenness in our lives. What's been damaged? What's gone wrong? And it's a process in which we have to cooperate. God doesn't impose righteousness on us in that sense. It's, it's a journey, it's a growth, it's a process in which we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit or we can get in the way of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And for all of us, it's a different journey. My journey is going to be different to your journey. But for all of us, it's a journey that we need to make. We can't, this is the message of James, we cannot as Christians say, yes, I believe, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, came from heaven, died on the cross for me, rose again so I might have eternal life, and it made no difference in our lives. Because if that's the case, then we haven't really believed those truths. Because if we believe those truths, it has to make a difference in our lives. And all of us are broken or damaged in some way. It may be by the things that have been done to us by others. It may be due to circumstances, things that have happened to us and how we've reacted to them. It may be because of wrong choices that we've made which have harmed us. It may be because of things that we've done to others which we know have been wrong and we can't forget and we can't forgive ourselves for. We're talking in this series about being broken, about being damaged or about being hurt. All ways of expressing the fact that we are not whole. We are not what we should be or even what we want to be. And we're talking about this as, as highlighting areas where God needs to bring his change into our lives. Because the good news of the gospel is that God in Jesus has come to mend our brokenness, to heal our emotional, spiritual scars. Not that one, sorry. John 10.10, Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that, that process of being mended, of, of having our brokenness mended, is bringing us fullness of life. One of the great things, I think, about the, the Bible is that it gives us a warts and all view of the people that it talks about. Um, the narrative of Scripture is all about God's interaction with broken people. And through, through their lives, we get to see examples of how God deals with broken people. How he brings wholeness, restoration, fixing into people's lives. And so as, as like an introduction to this series that we're doing, 
I, I want to look at three examples of people in the Bible who met with Jesus and in that meeting experienced God's healing, wholeness, fullness, restoration, fixing in their lives. So these are just three people um, and we could have chosen many others in the Bible, all different, all individuals, all with different needs and problems and experiences, people like us. But for all of these people, Jesus brought wholeness, blessing, healing into their lives. So the first person we're going to look at is Zacchaeus. And the story of Zacchaeus is, uh, is told in Luke 19. We all, those of us who went to Sunday school, we will all be very familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. So he was a rich chief tax collector in Jericho. Uh, we all know the story. He was too small to see Jesus as Jesus was passing by. So he climbed up sycamore tree. And when Jesus passed by, he looked up, saw Zacchaeus, told him to come down and invited himself, Jesus invited himself into Zacchaeus' house to eat with him. And we're told that Zacchaeus came down and welcomed Jesus gladly. And the people that were there around at the time, they were scandalized. Because Jesus, they were saying, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to Jesus, he would give away half of his possessions to the poor and he would make restitution four times over for any that he had cheated. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And I, I looked this up uh, yesterday and it was kind of almost shocked me that almost every time when tax collectors are mentioned in the New Testament, and they're mentioned quite a lot, almost always it's linked with sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. You look at that phrase in the Bible, tax collectors and sinners. So, you know, tax collectors were not nice people. They weren't good people. Um, Clearly, Zacchaeus had cheated people. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made his offer. He would have been working with the occupying Romans and he would have been a very unpopular figure with his fellow Jews because of his working with the Romans, because the tax collectors were extortioners and because he was very rich. And the picture that we get in, in the Bible of Zacchaeus is, is he was someone who was un, probably ungodly, materialistic, dishonest. Someone for whom wealth was more important than integrity or relationships or obedience to God. And that was Zacchaeus' brokenness. And Jesus comes into Zacchaeus' life and he is changed. He is like a new creation. The hold of materialism in his life is broken. And from being godless, Jesus actually says he is now a son of Abraham. 
Abraham is the father of all who believe. So, so Zacchaeus had gone from no faith to having faith. And in many ways, Zacchaeus experiences freedom. You, you, it doesn't say it, but you can almost pick it up from the text, the, the kind of joy that is in Zacchaeus as he gives away half of his possessions. He's been set free from that materialism, acquisitiveness, greed, that had broken his life, that was damaging him. Jesus says he came to seek and save the lost. He came to fix the broken. So I wonder if there is something about Zacchaeus in you. Are you materialistic? Do you find being generous easy? Do you maybe prize wealth too highly? Have you done something which is dishonest? Have you cheated people? These kind of attitudes are unhealthy and they need to be healed. They need to be fixed. And if we invite Jesus into our lives, he will start to begin that process. The second person I want to think about that met with Jesus, we don't even know her name. Uh, so she's the woman who is mentioned in John chapter 8. So she was dragged before Jesus in the temple courts in Jerusalem by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees because she had been caught in the act of adultery. And the, the religious leaders, they wanted to trap Jesus and accuse him, presumably because they knew that Jesus enjoyed spending his time with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. So they say to Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And at first, if you remember the story, Jesus doesn't say anything. He's... He's drawing with his finger in the sand. And then eventually he says, let any of you who are without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And we're told that the crowd slunk away the older ones first. And eventually Jesus is left just with a woman and he looks up and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's the story in John chapter 8. Again, something we're very familiar with. But unlike, unlike Zacchaeus, we don't really know anything about this woman. We don't know her name. We don't know where she was from. We don't know what she did. But that phrase that Jesus uses, leave your life of sin, I think we can assume that this wasn't just a one-off fling that this woman was caught with, uh, in, that she was probably a serial adulterer. Maybe, maybe she was a prostitute. So we don't really know her background, neither do we really know what her response was. Um, but what we do know is that she'd been, you know, we can assume she'd been saved from certain death by Jesus challenging the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
Um, and she probably did respond to Jesus' command to leave her life of sin. So again, Jesus steps into this woman's life and she is changed. And I deliberately chose this example because of the brokenness in our own society relating to sexual conduct. We all know in the fellowship here that we've been rocked uh, in this last year by cases of adultery leading to breakup of marriages and all sorts of consequences. And they're going to be felt for years to come. And what I want to say is that even in, in the midst of that, Jesus can still bring healing and wholeness. He can fix the brokenness of infidelity. doesn't mean that the consequences can go away, will go away. But it does mean that there can be healing for those involved. Just as Jesus offered to the, the woman in John chapter 8. We come, we come from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of us have been Christians for many, many years. And some of us have been Christians only recently. And come to faith, you know, well into our adult life. And there may well be things from our past that have a hold over us. That we need to confess and maybe address. We may not have been involved in adultery ourselves, but Jesus makes it clear um, in Matthew 5.28, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his, heart, in his heart. And we all know that we're surrounded with sexual temptation, aren't we? On the television, the internet. We live in a society where the accepted norms of sexual behavior are very different from those that Jesus set out for the kingdom of God. So it's an area where we live in conflict with the world that we live in. And again, I want to ask us the question, is this an area where you have been broken? Where you need healing and forgiveness and wholeness? So that's the second person. And the third person I want to look at is very, very different to Zacchaeus and to the woman caught in the act of adultery. In fact, this guy was a paragon of virtue. He was a Jew. He was brought up in Jerusalem. He was trained in the, the law from a very young age. He studied, studied under Gamaliel, who was like one of the top religious rabbis of the day. And he even described himself as being extremely zealous for the traditions of his Jewish fathers. And if you haven't worked it out, this guy is the Apostle Paul. And you can ask the question, well, hadn't he got it right? He was one of the religious elite. People would have looked up to him. He was so zealous for his religion that he persecuted the early church, putting many of the believers into captivity 
and taking part in the murder of Stephen. So how was Paul broken? He was broken, I believe, because of his pride. Because he thought he could earn his way to pleasing God. He could earn his place in heaven. He thought of himself as righteous. In fact, he said he was faultless according to the law. His brokenness was his pride and his self-righteousness. Paul knew nothing of God's grace until he met with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And like the others, he was transformed. And I wonder if maybe for some of us, our understanding of God is a bit broken, is a bit wonky. I wonder if some of us are desperately trying to earn our salvation. I wonder if some of us have ever been tempted to think that we are good enough for God, that we are better than others. You know, the Pharisee who stood in the temple and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the publican. I wonder if there's some of that in us. I wonder if pride is a problem. I wonder if we're trying to earn God's favor. I wonder if we have got God's heart for lost people. And those are just three examples and the Bible is full of examples. Almost everybody, every character that we come across in the Bible in some way has a degree of brokenness about them. And I know that you know there are people here who I could ask to stand up and they would be able to stand and give a testimony of, of, of the same thing, of, of brokenness, hurt in their lives, that God has brought positive change, healing and wholeness into their lives. And that is what this preaching series that we're doing now, that is what it's going to be about. It's going to be a challenge to us to let Jesus into our lives. To allow him to work out that process of healing, fixing, making us whole. A challenge to us to allow him to change us. And, and I want to encourage us all over this next couple of months to honestly before God allow him to deal with those dark parts of our lives. The parts that other people don't know about. The parts that other people can't see. Maybe things from the past. Maybe things that are currently still an issue for us but the parts where deep down we know that we're broken, that we're not as God would want us to be. Somebody from the fellowship recently shared a picture of me with me.
that the Lord had given them in a prayer meeting. And, and they, said, they said it was a, a very graphic picture for them of a weeping sore, a wound. And it, it, it was obviously a very powerful thing because it prompted them to tell others and, and through that to tell me. And it reminded me of Jeremiah's prophecy. Twice in Jeremiah, he uses these words. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace they say, when there is no peace. And I guess I want to challenge us this morning to allow God to deal with our wounds. To deal with the hurt and the pain and the brokenness. And... I think that, is, that may well be a painful process for some of us. I want to challenge us to be open with God. You know, for wounds to be healed, they have to be open, don't they? If we, if we just pl- apply a bandage to something, if we just hide it away, it's not going to bring healing. We're just dressing the wound, but we're not bringing healing. So I want us to be, allow God to challenge us. I want us to tell God where it hurts. And I want us to ask him to make it better. As I said, for some of us, that may be a painful process. It may be opening up old wounds. And we we may well want to talk to somebody, ask them to pray with us. If that happens, I want to encourage you to make sure that it's done sensitively and confidentially. But I do believe that as a church, we need a season of healing. Not not physical healing, but emotional, spiritual, mental healing. And I have I've seen that firsthand. I've experienced it in my own life in recent years. Seen it in the lives of others that we've prayed for in the fellowship. I believe that if we are open to God, if we are open to His Holy Spirit, we allow him to deal with our wounds he will bring real change real healing real freedom because that's what the kingdom of God is about that's how God works the person who gave me that picture about the weeping saw they also gave me a verse that they felt God had laid on their heart 
And it's this. Zechariah 13.1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the, to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And all this, all, all that we've been talking about, hurt, brokenness, all of those things, it all relates back in some way or other to, to sin and impurity. And we believe, don't we, that on the cross, that lovely Welsh hymn, on the cross, the fountains of God's mercy were opened deep and wide. And that's why in the prayer meeting tonight, we're going to begin with communion. Because the answer to all of our brokenness and our wounds lies at the cross. That's God's solution. That is God's answer. That's the way God mends broken people. It's at the cross. The cross is God's answer to the problem of sin once for all. And it says we engage with, with that, engage with the forgiveness and healing and wholeness that God offers at the cross, that we will find that healing and wholeness mending in our lives.